The other day, the yellow pages were delivered to my house and my daughter was excited that a package had come, so we were looking through it. And in the middle of it, they have maps, like the old street directories that we used. And uh, it was funny to look and use one of them for the first time where, you know, go up to page 36, go across to page 29. And it was helpful because I actually got to see how a lot of the area I live in fits together. Because when I just use my phone to get me from place to place, it really only shows you the small little part of the road that you are on. But get, to get this fuller vision of the area that I'm living, where suburbs and lakes and beaches intersect with one another was really helpful. My guest today offers the idea that doctrine, Christian doctrine, provides something of this kind of vision, that it works together parts and the whole to constructively and creatively present a vision of what the Christian gospel proclaims and a vision of the kind of world in which it is proclaimed. My guest today is Jeff Thompson, longtime friend of the podcast, the wonderful Jeff Thompson, the coordinator of studies of systematic theology at Pilgrim Theological College and associate professor at the University of Divinity, Melbourne, Australia. His book is Christian Doctrine, A Guide for the Perplexed, which is out now with T and T. Clark. Uh, I encourage you to go and get it and, and you can check out his other books, Disturbing Much, Disturbing Many, a genuinely theological church, and I think it's in his own strange way, his uh, sort of commentary on the basis of union. Uh, and there's more ways to connect with Jeff in the show notes. But for now, my name is Liam Miller, which I think I've forgotten in the last bunch of inter uh, interviews. This is Love, Riz, Repeat, another fact I often forget. But let us welcome Jeff Thompson to Love, Riz, Repeat. Well, Jeff Thompson, welcome back to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Thank you, Liam. It's good to be back. Yeah, I've had you on several times now, which is it's really exciting and always always fun to talk with you. Uh, we're, we're, this is going to come out pretty soon after we record, so we're recording you know, in the midst of uh, COVID-19 and, and all its effects. You were just saying you're teaching uh, online now, like the classes have moved yeah. online and uh, church worship's been suspended here, so... Hopefully, this conversation will, you know, uh, you know, help people fill time or or fill their lack of Bible study or, or uh, theological conversations that they are missing out on. Well, maybe. I mean, I, I'm struck that probably reading books on Christian doctrine isn't the way that most people would fill their time um, in these present circumstances. But on the other hand, um, I think there's a lot of understandings of Christianity that are coming into play and need some development interrogation enhancement uh, right at the moment because precisely because of the circumstances we're in. So maybe maybe the book could be quite useful at this time. There we go. Maybe as we get into this conversation, we'll, uh, we'll see how. So I guess maybe it is kind of, you almost uh, kind of flagged it a bit there. Doctrine isn't necessarily the first thing a theologian thinks that they want to explore, um, mm. especially doctrine as a, as a broader field, not individual doctrines. And and probably in the churches even less, you know, you kind of yeah. mentioned early on in the in the preface that, you know, doctrine is sometimes met with furrowed brows and uh, and, and quite, um, you know, active avoidance. Uh, you know, uh, so, so what was it that drew you to explore doctrine as, as this, you know, as, as a fuller concept uh, and, and its role in the church and its relationship to uh, the Bible? Yeah. 
Well, I think the realisation that we are working with it all the time, whether we acknowledge it or not, and whether we are more or less generous towards doctrine. Doctrine is just there. We, we are the, the inheritors of a particular tradition um, and people are developing doctrine um, all the time. And, and, or, sorry, they're using it and in the process of using it, are developing it. That's one reason. The second reason is just my interest, I suppose, in a debate that began back in the 1980s through George Lindbeck's The Nature of Doctrine. Um, and I've, I've followed that debate over the over the intervening decades and I've, I've found it just to be a really lively debate about what is doctrine, what function does it have in the life of the church. And, and I think, unfortunately, the liveliness of that debate has actually not really touched the churches. So some of those uh, negative attitudes towards doctrine remain in place without any awareness of how much um, um, vibrancy there actually is and ferment, if you like, around the question of doctrine in, in scholarly discussions. Mm. So that, yeah, there was that, that coming together of those two things, I guess, that um, thought I oh, yeah, could explore this and try and give an overview of, of what doctrine is and how it functions in the life of the church. So you've been, even before these books come out, you've been kind of teaching courses on doctrine. I, I did a couple of courses with you that uh, one was very much on doctrine and another one it was part of the broader sweep of the class. Uh, what was it like, you know, delivering these classes both, I guess, in the lead-up to coming to the book and in the process of writing it? Did it, did it shape the questions? Did it um, kind of uh, direct where or what you wanted to focus on as you developed it? How was that process <laughs> Uh, for, for um, filling out your thought on this topic? Well, I think probably both in the um, the promotion of those courses and in the initial um, atmosphere of the classroom in those courses, mm. I was reminded of the, um, if not negativity, the suspicion that exists towards the whole doctrinal enterprise, even to the very word um, so in a sense, that was good. I uh, get reminded of, of those realities that are there the moment you want to start creatively engaging with, with doctrine, let alone run a unit on it. Mm. But I think what those courses have also reminded me, and I, I hope I've conveyed that to the students who've done them, is that the doctrine is an area of tremendous intellectual creativity. Um, okay, yes, and the reason why there is suspicion and negativity towards doctrine is because it can't be denied doctrine has often been imposed authoritatively on individuals and on communities and the church as a whole. And so, you know, for that, it, it, it rightly gets a negative rap mm. for that reason. But I think um, at the same time, when you actually look at the history of doctrine, you actually see how much ferment it carries along within it and, and how much doctrine actually becomes the focus of intellectual creativity. It becomes the focus of of prayer, of liturgy. Uh, it's a very fertile part of the church's life uh, and its life and thought. Um, so I guess, yeah, on the one hand, it, those, running those courses has reminded me of what, what you're up against when you try to creatively engage doctrine, but it's been another, there have been occasions when I've been reminded of the, the fruitfulness of, mm. uh, of Christian doctrine. I guess maybe I want to jump, this is like further into the book, but it's just maybe a good case study of what you're talking about here in case people are still sceptical of the uh, usefulness of, of particularly, you know, doctrinal statements of, of a sort. Yeah. Uh, and you, you look in part of the book at the Belhar Confession in South Africa as an example where doctrinal work produced by the church 
you know, in an attempt to you know, assert a powerful truth claim, uh, has instead of dividing, united, and in, and really become a kind of constructive political and theological uh, statement in a, in a time when it was of great need. Yes. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that and and how you see that as an example of what of, of the function of doctrine mm. uh, in in this kind of constructive, creative, life giving uh, sure. manner? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's it's almost the best ex- example there is in recent decades of doctrine doing serious work and and employing very orthodox Christian doctrine as well, mm. uh, and using uh, a genre that you know we we might associate with the the uh, 16th century with the from the reformers. Um, so I think it's it's um, it just beautifully demonstrates I think how how doctrine works. Uh, and again, just. Uh, those who are not familiar with it, it comes out of the 1980s in South Africa um, in the, the context of a divided church, the racially divided church. Mm. And this comes as a powerful statement about essentially the doctrine of reconciliation. Um, and it's making the point that if indeed reconciliation is what, or God's reconciliation of the world is what it is according to the biblical witness. And if it does indeed have these implications for the forms of life that must be demonstrated amongst Christian people, then the divisions that had existed on um, on the basis of race in South Africa were to be utterly rejected. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then it, it led to it became part then of the of the political protest, but it also became part of the the protest within the South African Christian community. I think one of the things that's really striking about that document, the Belhar Confession, is that it never, in the in the body of the confession itself, it never actually mentions South Africa or it never uses the word apartheid. Now, there is an accompanying letter that, in a sense, is part of the confession, um, but it is, it is distinct. And that accompanying letter does set out the context of the document. But I think it's one of the reasons why it has resonance today and whilst that why there are churches around the world who have taken up this confession themselves even though they've not been part of South Africa in the 1980s or or, or in contexts that are not necessarily troubled by racial division it's because it's tapped deeply into what the gospel is uh, it's gone it's probed right down to the heart of what this gospel of reconciliation is and it has declared this in this, in a very strong, bold declaratory pronouncement, this is the gospel, and these are the implications of the gospel. Um, does so focused on one particular doctrine, although it spills out into other areas of Christian doctrine as well. So, yeah, I think it's a great, great place to start, um, and both to to what essentially just to demonstrate what doctrine is, the forms that it takes, the context in which it arises. And the functions that it can perform. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you for that. And I think what's can I just say if oh, people yeah. haven't, you know, I hope lots of people buy the book. But if you don't buy the book, um, go and look up Belhart Confession on the internet. I mean, it's mm. it's just it's a really wonderful document. Mm. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, and I think something that I guess another point, which the the, the, the you know the story of the Belhart kind of points to this, is that. You know, we often think, I think, there's a perception that doctrine kind of happened once and happened for all, mm. and we've all just kind of got to get in line with what was decided in pretty much the third and fourth century 
and you have to at least assent to it, even if you want to cross your fingers. You've got to at least kind of just abide by these once and for all. But what you kind of point out, you know, drawing on a, a range of theologians, is that you know, doctrine is revisable. Mm. Uh, doctrine is produced, is produced, sorry, um, and exists within debates uh, and is grounded in conflicts and contest and. Uh, but is this process is not fixed? Is a thing that we come to again and again uh, mm. to revise and to re-explore? Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about about how you you know coming to that idea of doctrine um, and how potentially that you know is good news to a church moving into new yeah. times yeah. and places? Yeah. Well, I think um, yeah, chapter two of the book where I set out that the ten different theologians who. Uh, self-consciously doctrinal theologians, and most of them, with one exception, working in a kind of producing their material in a systematic way. What that um, that survey of those ten theologians show, I think, is as a as a historical fact that Christian theologians never simply repeat what they have received. I mean, obviously, yes, there are, in, in, there are some who, who who do that and still today. But when you look at the great theologians, they see themselves, on the one hand, yes, there is something to receive, and depending on their own relationship to the tradition, their own ecclesiology, their own ecclesial um, position uh, as individuals, they will receive um, the doctrinal tradition with a greater or lesser degree of loyalty. But none of them simply repeat it. They develop it. They ask new questions of it. Um, sometimes, yes, they will simply expound what has been given. Um, but that, that's really only a small part of what they do. And so they are, they are representing the Christian gospel mediated by its doctrinal framework and doctrinal uh, content to a particular context that's asking particular questions, that's facing particular pressures. So, I mean, that's, that's I think, just very clear from the historical record when you look at the history of doctrinal theologians doing their work. Now, sure, you could argue, and certainly in the 10 that I, I used, uh, there is um, some continuity of broad framework. There is a conviction about the unity of creation and redemption, the pivotal place of Jesus Christ in that unity. But beyond that, they, they address that overarching framework in a multitude of ways and uh, they, the way they reassemble Christian doctrine is also part of what they don't simply repeat. Um, that's where their creativity is often most evident, when they are the, the ways in which they order Christian doctrine, whether they start with the doctrine of God or doctrine of um, salvation or scripture, for instance. And that, I think that's one of the most fascinating aspects to, of the whole history of, uh, of doctrinal theologians. I think the other powerful witness to that phenomenon about doctrine are the, is the work of Christine Helmer and her analysis of how doctrine is developed and constructed. Um, but she just says it's, it's unavoidable that Christian doctrine just is produced in the midst of debate, of, um, of crisis, of controversy, um, and, and I would add it's also produced uh, at times of uh, stability and times of consolidation. Um, and it's produced in the context of prayer and liturgy and worship. Um, but it always involves people discussing with one another 
whether literally face-to-face or in councils or through scholars um, engaging with their predecessors in their writings. Um, it, it, it simply can't be denied that doctrine is this kind of socially constructed phenomenon. Oh, thank you for that. And I think um, I was re- re- a book I, oh, people can, people can check out the interview of Christine Helmer as well yeah. uh, on the Love, Rinse, Repeat feeds if you want more of that. And I agree with Jeff. Her work is, is really great. Um, I was recently reading um, B.A. Gerrish's um, Christian Dogmatic, mm-hmm. Christian Faith Dogmatics in Outline. And, and it, it just kind of goes to your point of he's, you know, very much someone entrenched in a tradition. Yes. And he picks two kind of voices to ha- have a conversation with in Calvin and Schleiermacher and taking that reform tradition. But he himself is, you know, critiquing and rereading and reading against them and reading through them and bringing in other voices. But it's still something grounded in tradition, but it is this, you know, conversation across time in different contexts mm. in order to, you know, explore all these various doctrinal points. So I think. And, I, and I think that's what makes this kind of, and whether it's doctrine or other forms of theological or more general intellectual work, interesting. It's actually when you, you watch one great thinker engage another great thinker, mm-hmm. both in, in appreciation and criticism, that, to my mind, is much, much more interesting than just someone who comes up with a set of new ideas and expounds them for the heck of it. Mm. Um, it's it, Because it's actually there where you see real thought, real development of ideas and real intellectual power mm. on display. Mm. And I think, you know, they're all, they, they should all be features of what is good Christian doctrine. Mm. And then I guess there's the idea of, so that's the doctrine in its, in its production and then it becomes about, you know, in its reception. And you, you kind of talk here in one point, Christian doctrine is an intellectual enterprise that generates further investigation, clarification, criticism, commentary and construction. So mm. it's not only about, you know, Bart can write all this he wants and then it has to go out into the world and people have to yes. then wrestle with, well, are we going to, are we going to take this on or not? Or how is it going to shape our our mm. churches and, and our meetings. And I think that's where it's interesting in, in your really in your opening definition that you work with, uh, you talk about Christian doctrine being communally recognised. Mm. So, again, it's not, um, there's kind of two things at play here. One, it can't just be individually espoused and then not picked up yes, and yes. then it has no doctrine. And also it can't just be individually espoused and then uh, enforced. Mm. Um or you know, assumed to be uh, the the way you know. So, talk a bit, I guess, about the way that after production, going into then that conversation, contemplation, wrestling in a community, mm. and and why it was important you, for you to you know see both that this is a that fertile ground continues post production, yes. yeah. and how that then gets to this idea of being communally recognised. Sure. Um, well, now that you've mentioned Bart, um, I, I will just, I mean, one of my favourite quotes from Bart, and it's one of the, my favourite quotes in the book, is that, well, Bart uses the word dogmatics in this particular quotation. He said, all, all dogmatics is fluid material for further work. And, I mean, I think that's, you know, again, it challenges some of the stereotypes that doctrine has. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also challenges the way many doctrinal theologians the way some doctrinal theologians work. I mean, I think that idea of it being fluid material is is foreign to some doctrinal theologians. Mm-hmm. 
If I can also just pick up that issue about community, defining doctrine as communally recognised teaching. For me, the, the choice of the word recognised there was, was quite important because it allows people to be part of a community who recognise that this, is, that this particular doctrine is what a community teaches. Um, but they may dissent from it, but that alone doesn't mean that they can't be part of the community. And I think dissent is, again, an important part of uh, the Christian community and, and, again, something that I think has not been often enough brought into conversation with what Christian doctrine is, which, of course, does lead into the question of um, how it is received. And I guess the argument that I've developed in the book is to talk about the role that doctrine plays in the Christian social imaginary, that its its role is often um, implicit. In fact, mostly, probably the vast majority of the work that Christian doctrine does for the Christian community is implicit. And I don't think that, to me, is not a problem at all. We, I don't think it is the purpose of um, Christian doctrine to find its work in its replication in each individual believer. I don't think every individual believer has to be uh, on top of every Christian doctrine or even have an awareness of it. But I think that Christian doctrine, because the way in which particular theologians put um, the different doctrines together itself produces a vision of what the Christian faith is and therefore a vision of what the world is, what reality is, and how we engage it and experience reality and enter into it and change it, challenge it, uh, through the filter of that Christian vision. So, um, and I, but that, that's going, how does that happen? Well, obviously it's going to happen in a multitude of ways. Um, it will happen through um, preaching, happen through teaching in the faith, happen through people reading the Bible from in a doctrinally informed way. Um, but as I say, I think a lot of that just happens at a very implicit level, and I think that is absolutely fine. Um, but I think that nevertheless means that there needs to be there need to be some people in the church who are conscious and deliberate and intentional about the work that doctrine can do, alert also to the way it can be misformed and therefore the, the damage it can actually do to the Christian social imaginary. But um, that doesn't mean everybody has to be engaged with doctrine in the same way. But the church ought to be, the church as a community ought to be intentional about some of its members at least being attentive to its work. Thank you for that. Uh, I think it's probably worthwhile then, Senna, that you've been talking about social imaginary and that obviously becomes a big part of, of the penultimate chapter of the book uh, is, is doctrine as well in shaping this Christian social imaginary. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you're meaning with, um, when using that term sure. uh, for those who haven't encountered it before or heard it in you know, passing, uh, and then maybe we'll get into a bit of, yeah, the, the, the gritty of how doctrine works in there. Sure, yeah. Well, look, it's a term that that's used in a number of disciplines, perhaps particularly in, in political theory, um, to, and I, I use it as it's developed by the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor. Um, so for Taylor, the social imaginary is that sort of innate or in inchoate or implicit sense of what holds a community together, um, what allows members of one community to recognise another person as a member of that community, how does it help them? It, it, the social imaginary is that the implicit, almost invisible reality that allows people to determine what their shared values are, 
to recognise what might be outside those values. Uh, and in a sense, what is it is something of the glue that holds a particular given community together. And I think uh, I've uh, you know, tried. I think that that therefore is a useful concept for thinking about the church. I mean, what what is it that holds the Christian community globally together, or what holds a particular tradition together, or a particular church, local church community together? So I think it's a it's a helpful concept. Um, and part of um, Taylor's point is that um, you don't necessarily have the social imaginary set out. Is that aren't particularly written documents that tell you what they are. Those written documents might be there performing certain functions within that society, um, but they their influence uh, on forming the social imaginary is um, well. I keep using the word implicit, but that's, that's essentially that's essentially what it is. So, but of course, there are many different um, realities within a society that are forming its social imaginary. Um, in, a, in a political society, it might be its, its laws, um, it might be a constitution, um, might be the, the laws, the, the, the parliamentary processes themselves or government processes. So no one of them defines the social imaginary. And that's why I think it's a helpful concept to bring into the conversation about doctrine. I think doctrine can be presented as one of the things that helps form the Christian social imaginary, that sense of who we are, what do we value, what do we recognise amongst each other, what do we, what do we want to affirm uh, about that which even lies outside of our particular society, what can we absorb from other societies. So I think doctrine is able to do that alongside other things that the church does in forming the church's collective social imaginary. And, and I think it for those who perhaps are worried about doctrine and its notion, its, its association with being imposed authoritatively, I think placing doctrine as one of the uh, important but not the only source of the Christian imaginary and seeing it do, if you like, in a more gentle sort of work than doctrine had perhaps sometimes um, done in its more authoritative and enforced manifestations might be helpful for people to see actually doctrine is important but let's use it and develop it and engage with it in the in the way that it allows it to do its gentle work i think that's really helpful and i think you know you can see that there's then a pastoral role to doctrine as well i'm thinking about like at the moment right churches can't meet together you yeah. can't meet in the buildings they ha uh, have been for some people meeting in for decades and decades and decades um and that's challenging a lot of people's conception of what the church is mm. because as you say you know not a lot of people have engaged or manner of ecclesiology which might remind you again and again the church is not a building but the people but yeah um yeah. you know so so now you know doctrine has a part to, a kind of a role to play in helping to frame a picture of what it is mm. to be the church what it is to be you know a christian social imaginary yeah. corporate body of people that can't come together but it's still just as valid if it meets yeah. online and obviously there's lots of discussions out there particularly maybe churches with higher sacramental uh, yes, theologies about how exactly you know they're going to do all this and and yes this actual attention to the way doctrine can shape how we understand ourselves um 
is very pastorally uh, important in times like this where people maybe are feeling that they, you know, the meaning has been ripped away and uh, validity of their uh, faithfulness is mm. being is being shaken. Yeah, and I, I think you know the, our present circumstances are going to have a sig- very significant impact on the Christian social imaginary for all the reasons you just talked about. The whole, I mean, you know, we've all affirmed for phrases and that you know the church is the is the people; it's not the building. But in practice, we find it very hard to let go of that. And you know, I think this could be a very good opportunity to think very deeply about the nature of the church. Mm. Um, so yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about another uh, specific example in the book because uh, one of the critiques or questions that sometimes also gets laid at the foot of people interested in doctrine is that particularly, you know, if you take a view of there are um, guiding doctrines that, that the whole church must attend to, particularly that coming from um, Charles Adon and Nicaea, and that is that the questions being asked about substance and, and, and nature uh, totally foreign to the questions being asked in in you know uh, non-Western cultures and theologies and churches in the contemporary time, and so the doctrine kind of falls apart, uh, or the very you know the concept of what doctrine tries to do uh, receives great challenge or falls apart as Christianity crosses cultures. Yeah. Uh, and, and you address that in a couple of different ways, and, and one is through engaging M. M. Thomas, an Indian theologian, to show that in a, in a wildly different context, in post-independence um, India, or in the process of getting independence, yeah. post-independence yeah. India, um, and dealing with mass poverty and and being a, minor, a minority group within the culture, all all these different questions that were not the questions of fourth-century. Uh, Rome, mm. uh, he, he still approaches them through attending to doctrine. Yeah. So I yeah. guess maybe I'm putting the broader question out about that kind of concern about doctrine uh, as, as Christianity crosses cultures and different mm. questions and cultural frameworks and language uh, emerges and also and, and then into this particular case of what Thomas uh, attempts and achieves. Sure. Well, in, in many ways, I think they, the example I give of M.M. M. Thomas and um, the two Chinese theologians that I engage with as well actually confirm the point made in the earlier chapters about the, um, the firm or not the, the dynamic nature of, of Christian doctrine. Mm. But this mixture of um, receiving something and deeming it worthy enough to consider engaging it. Even if it is in criticism, but actually seeing there's there's something here that's been received that is actually worth wrestling with, and Thomas does that particularly with the doctrine of salvation um, in a, a context in which the the life reality and this is this is mid twentieth century um, India emerging as as you said emerging into its independent state, um, but he what he's able to do is to take some broad brush view of the Christian view of salvation centred in Jesus Christ and take that into the realities of caste, of of poverty, shocking inequality in India and make that doctrine come alive in a particular context, his own context. Um, 
But I also think one of the things that was drew me to focus on Thomas's work, or I suppose this is just another way of making the same point, um, is that he doesn't see himself as a complete innovator. He sees himself radically, radically engaging the Christian doctrine of salvation and knowing that in what he um, argues about it, basically he talks and, and, you know, people get nervous about the Marxist um, overtones of, of his work, um, of humanisation. But it's he develops it in such a way that he he never loses the roots. He never loses his roots in, in the Christian doctrine of salvation. Um, and that he... He develops it in a way that means that other people who are part of what he's receiving or who are more used to the sort of traditional doctrine of salvation that he's receiving can engage with it. So that I think he opens up um, the, the possibility of real communication across those different cultural contexts around that particular Christian doctrine. Um and um, um, both the, the two Chinese theologians, um, K.H. Ting and Wang Wei Fun, um, they they have an almost identical approach. They, uh, Wang Wei Fun, in his doctrine of the cosmic Christ, says he wants to develop this in a way that it actually could be a blessing for the Western church, um, which I think shows the kind of um, this a posture of engagement with doctrine. Um, that is both, and again, to quote um, Kevin Van Hooser's comments uh, that I that I always already quote in the book, doctrine inhabits this space between stabilisation and innovation. And I think that the cross-cultural contexts that we, that, that, that cluster of Asian, mid-20th century Asian theologians that I talk about uh, and some that I've referred to later in the book, I think are brilliantly focusing for us what it means to inhabit this space in precisely in matters of Christian doctrine, between stabilisation and innovation. Well, that's, that's really helpful. I wonder if there's some uh, lesson for preachers there as you're trying to introduce new concepts or, mm -hmm. or to, to try to motivate a community to uh, become passionate about a particular uh, thing in their in their in their neighbourhoods or, or society of, of, of embedding that in uh, familiar language and concepts of, of, of doctrine and, and theology. Mm. Yes, definitely. Um, so there's a, a conversation through the book, you know, that comes up again and again of uh, your know, doctrine of both the part and the whole, mm -hmm. uh, and that a lot of time doctrine exists within systems uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, try to, as you say, I think you mentioned earlier, try to present a vision of mm -hmm. the faith and a vision of seeing the world. And, and for that reason, the, the pieces, you know, should relate in some way or another, one way or another. Uh, and, and you kind of, you know, another point talk about, you know, there isn't, doctrine without doctrines uh, yes. as well. Like it, in the end, comes to a point where people are wrestling with specific, specific truth claims about the faith. Uh, so I guess maybe just talk to us a bit about that because, again, I think that's probably if you're working in churches, sometimes, you know, and you're getting little pieces of uh, lectionary texts here and there and you're trying to present this Christian or help foster a social imaginary and you're trying to help people understand uh, in, in parts, you know, the, the, the fullness of the Christian confession. Uh, how do you see that relationship between part and whole and, and, and how that we might explore that without, you know, overburdening ourselves that 
what I preached uh, yeah. four years ago yeah. on, on, yeah. on Genesis 1 needs to really yeah. line up with what I'm about to say on, on John 1. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think it's, it's helpful to, well, I find it helpful anyway to, um, to be, be very intentional about using the word vision instead of system. Um, and, and I think that, you know, there's been a, a very long debate uh, particularly in 20th century doctrinal theology about the importance or not of a system and certainly um, feminist critique has been very strong and justly so in this area that too much Christian doctrine has been presented as a final system. Again, I, you know, I think we, the historical record <laughs> suggests it's something more subtle than that, um, but one can't deny that, that there are um, particular church traditions and particular theologians who do indeed produce this system of thought that's closed, that's final, and there can be no engagement, creative engagement with it. So it's right to criticise that. Um, um, but I think there's, there's two, two reasons we might um, look at, well, there, there are two different dimensions, I think, to the, the question of system. On the one hand, it's a very modern issue. Uh, in the sense that systems were, some Christian theologians sought to develop systems of thought to, to give them epistemological security in the context of post-Enlightenment Western thought. So if Christian thought was going to be defended and articulated, it needed some foundation, and from that foundation you build up a system, pull the foundation away and the system actually collapses. So I think it's, it's absolutely right to, to criticise that view um, because you can't, I mean, we'll talk about uh, at the end of the book the, what exactly is the foundation of, um, or what is the foundation of our truth claims. So there's a whole lot of um, postmodern critique of Christian thought feeding that particular criticism. But I think when you look at the pre-modern era, before this desire for epistemological foundations kicked in, people were less, they were quite happy to develop systems of thought. They may not have used that word, but something, some sense of the whole, but they were driven not to get to secure its foundations, but to actually address the pastoral and pedagogical needs of the Christian community. The sense in which we give, we, we can provide a vision. It is possible to articulate the Christian faith in such a way that allows us to see reality, life, the world, through this particular filter. So I think that's that, okay, but I think it's unhelpful to use the word system for that. We can use the word vision for that. Um, in terms then of how does that happen, um, particularly for preachers, well, I, I don't know that the lectionary is our best friend in that regard, um, mm. partly because of the way that it tends to atomise scripture, it tends also to already have built into it particular themes that may be okay but uh, not necessarily providing opportunities for unpacking some of those themes in a more creative, through a more creative engagement. And of course, I'm sure many preachers do do that. Mm. But, look, I think in the end it's about preachers finding ways of making the connections and I think being intentional about that um when I, I used to when i used to be involved in in teaching uh preaching in, a, in an earlier placement 
um, I used to say that the, the issue for me is not what are you going to communicate in this sermon today, but what vision of life are you going to be cu- cultivating amongst your congregation over the next year? And which I think takes the pressure off needing to get this sermon right mm. or to be preoccupied with conveying information, pieces of information X, Y, and Z in this sermon. But thinking about how does this sermon relate to what I'm doing in the whole ministry of preaching over a year or two years? Um, I don't I mean, I, yeah, I don't I know whether that's that is um, works or not. I mean, it was something I tried to do when I was in parish ministry, but that's mm. a fair while ago now. Mm, no, I think that's a really good uh, way to think about it. Uh, I was just thinking when you're talking then about the that shift in the way doctrine was constructed, uh, you know, to, to answer those post-Enlightenment critiques, uh, one of the things I remember learning in one of your classes that's always stuck with me is the way the, the shift in ordering of doctrine mm. uh, has a, a marked and noticeable change in the kind of post-Reformation time where the doctrine of Scripture creeps ever mm. and ever higher and ends up being predominantly the, the opening confession yeah. is, is about the, the uh, assurity, the, the assuredness of God's word uh, mm. in the Bible and how, you know, that then creeps into our culture and that m- so many church websites or, or denominational statements uh, open with the what we believe section and the first thing is we believe God's word, yeah. we believe the Bible, da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of, you know, as you say, is create, trying to create an epistemological foundation that um you know is meant to safeguard the beliefs but really it then just detaches the bible from the whole story of salvation and the nature of god who has one who reveals uh and so i think this is again a good case for why it's important to you know have done some thought on this doctrine and the Mm. way it uh it has been developed in contest and negotiation uh and and to answer particular questions in particular times and places because we're not then it just kind of trickles down to we're all just doing this because that's what we think we need to start with, but it starts to potentially malform the vision. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's another very good example of thinking about the way uh, that this tension between stabilisation and innovation. You could argue that the reformers had good reasons mm-hmm. to bring scripture forward the way they did, um, but then it stabilises. Mm. And it takes on a life of its own that is divorced from the polemics of the 16th, 17th centuries uh, and um, is no longer actually addressing the question that the reformers may have been uh, addressing themselves when they encouraged it to um, be lifted higher up. Um, Now, I do need to say, of course, if you look at... um, John Calvin, the great, you know, the most systematic perhaps of all the the, the early reformers, uh, he didn't actually begin with scripture. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, he begins with revelation, but it's a much broader concept of the knowledge of God and the knowledge of God in ourselves, which he holds together. So, um, yes, it, it's another example of the diversity with which different theologians actually respond to different mm-hmm. or to, to respond to similar challenges so then just as a fun question because we're nearing the end i remember you asking this of the students when we were doing this class uh given you know we you know there's no right way to begin a system or a vision uh uh where would you if you, you were sitting down to write your uh 
comprehensive and uh, cohesive vision of the Christian uh, life? Where, where do you begin? Yeah, well, I, I've been wrestling with this uh, just these last few weeks in teaching Christianity's big ideas this semester. Mm. And I guess the last few years I've been starting with Christology. And, and I think that's probably, again, but that's where my instinct lies um, to start there um, because it seems to me without Christology and, and all the disruptions that Christology bears within it, uh, both the production of Christology itself as a way of thinking about God and this strangeness of this crucified man being identified with God, you take that away, you take away that disruption and so many of the other questions that Christian theology wrestles with also fall away. Mm. And if you begin elsewhere, there's always the risk, I think, and it doesn't necessarily have to be realised. The risk doesn't need to be realised, but it can be. Um, that if you start elsewhere, you'll, um, you'll allow those questions or allow those areas of doctrinal inquiry to uh, separate themselves from those that fundamentally disruptive moment um, that Christology brings about. Mm. I like it. It's it's and I and you know it's a very it's, you, you reveal yourself as a, as a good uh, student of the basis of union uh, <laughs> in that approach. Uh, and I think also just as we won't give away the farm, but if people are, are heading to the book, you know, there's a lot of discussion around the relationship between doctrine and truth, which has mm. a, a whole own conversation where you get into yeah. you know, Lynn Beck and Van Hoos and Helmer. But at the end. Uh, you know that that answer maybe reveals a little bit about where you where you go looking for the relationship between doctrine yeah. and truth, which which yeah. I think is a helpful step that you you make in the book. Yeah, frustrated that the word limit prevented me from saying much more at the end of the book. I really did <laughs> <laughs> run out of words there, or run it yeah allowable words. Sure, because yeah, I would have liked to have said a lot more, but. Yeah. Anyway, there it is. Well, maybe we'll get you on sometime and we can, uh, you know, do a, an, a second epilogue uh, audio version style. Uh, well, let's, no, let's plug out no. the book. It is Christian Doctrine, A Guide for the Perplexed, uh, an excellent series uh, with lots of um, other great primers, but this is the one you need to get first uh, with TNT Clark. Jeff, thank you for coming on. Is there anything thank else you, you want to promote, uh, you know, and people might be looking for online classes. Put it, you got anything coming up next semester or is it all just play it by ear? Well, I'm on study leave next semester, ah. so I'm <laughs> looking forward to doing a bit of writing. Oh, um, nice. But, again, there's one thing I wanted to follow up, and that is mm. um, at some point this was rattling around my head as we were discussing you know, in terms of coming back to the, the purpose of Christian doctrine and, mm. and that discussion about this social imaginary, and I talked about the need for people to, the church, to at least be intentional that some of its people are addressing this. Mm. I think that what could be beyond between, you know, those who, who will never have an explicit knowledge of Christian doctrine and don't need to have it and, and, and those that do and who are charged by the church to do so, mm. then in between there I think there are people who uh, will have some awareness of the theological and doctrinal tradition in an explicit way, but not necessarily um, that's not their vocation. But I think the role that doctrine plays for them is to help develop good theological instincts and intuitions. And I owe that that, that phrase and that, that metaphor, if you like, of the theological instincts and intuitions to a colleague, um, I don't think she'll mind me saying so, um, Rachel Kronberger. 
who was we were talking about this recently, and I think it's a wonderful image about how does how does doctrine what's the formative role that doctrine plays? It's not to produce people who have a knowledge of doctrine, but it is to produce people who in their discipleship have good theological intuitions and instincts. Mm. So that's probably I I think that's so important. I think because and I think you know if you're in your churches, you know, oftentimes the person who someone comes to to help them make meaning or to help them, mm. you know, interpret an event uh, or to understand where God is in a moment is not always the first point of call is the person who's at, you say, no. at that end who the church of charge. It's, it's Definitely you not. who just yeah. have been there the same amount of time or a little bit longer, or maybe even less time yes, in the exactly. church. Them. Yeah. And, and it's not about having, you know, the exact right um, tick off every box, avoid every, um, you know, minutiae of heresy answer, but mm. it's having an answer that has exactly good insights yeah. and instincts that, um, you know, helps people to, to understand an event well in light of the world we proclaim through the light of the gospel. Uh, and I think that, that there is exactly virtue in being able to have those instincts formed. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, so that's really great, great spot. Once again, Christian Doctrine, A Guide for the Perplexed. Uh, you can also check out Jeff's blog. Uh, I'll link it in the bio and, uh, yeah, some great articles on there. And his other books, uh, which particularly if you're a Uniting Church person, uh, there's three good books I can off the top of my head that would all be worthwhile your time. Uh, thank you Jeff thanks for coming on okay thank you Liam